Westlaw Parrots, and welcome to the show. We're here to share our thoughts on Northwestern athletics and college sports with thoughts and analysis from the visceral to the statistical. We run our tailgate with the red pirate flag flying high above as we give no quarter, especially the fourth. I'm Sam Walter. I'm John Lacombe. And I'm Eric Skoskowspo. Well, guys, um, got quite a little bit uh, of catching up to do um, after... Uh, for all of those of you who managed to get through our hour and 45 minute live draft pod, congratulations to you all. Um, yeah, I was Pre- pretty sure we owe Chris from Winning Cures Everything a t-shirt. I, I think yeah. that, that is probably the case. And, uh, when he makes his way through Chicago later on this year, we'll uh, be sure to, to get that out to him. I'm impressed that somebody made it. <laughs> Well, I, I know that we were... I'm impressed we made it. Yeah, we, we could have gone another half an hour. We were stalling uh, to the end of the first round to see if what ended up happening at pick 32 would have happened. And that's uh, the Lamar Jackson pick. Um, yeah! Yeah, Baltimore trading back into the first round to take Lamar. Um, you know, we, we were waiting for someone to do that. And that was you know when New England passed on him twice... Uh, Baltimore were like, oh, we'll, we'll take the heir apparent to Joe Flacco because Joe Flacco. Yeah. <laughs> How many times during that draft did we say something to the effect of just like Teddy Bridgewater and then he gets drafted exactly like exactly Teddy Bridgewater? Like Teddy Bridgewater yeah. Yep. A, a situation know. that's going to be really interesting, though. I mean, you, you look at him in Baltimore. Um, RG3 is there. I. So I mean, yeah. yeah our, I'm, our, I'm not saying I'm not saying that as a, as a hindrance to Lamar. I just think that that could be more of a help to Lamar than anything else. I I'll be honest. So the the small amount of so I listen to a lot of reactions to this, and I think a lot of a lot of the smart people that I enjoy listening to think pretty highly of Lamar Jackson. The question is going to be. And I guess he had his first day of camp with the Ravens. It's hard to tell anything at this stage, but apparently, like some of the some of the scuttlebutt around the NFL is that it's pretty clear that there's already tension in the quarterback room there because the talent discrepancy on the field is blatant and obvious. And I think what'll be really interesting is I I'm confident that Lamar Jackson is going to break through. And certainly play this next season, if not become the starter eventually. I don't think Robert Griffin's going to see the field, but the the question's going to be: once he's successful in the NFL, what's going to happen when defenses adjust? And is he good enough? Is he able to change his game and tailor it? You know, when when teams figure out, okay, this is what we need to do to stop Jackson because this is what he's really good at. Can he shift gears and do something different? Uh, that, I mean, that's been, you know, what, is, what has made Brady such a good quarterback for so long because the moment you start blitzing him, he says, okay, I'm going to do this now. And the moment you stop blitzing him, he says, okay, I'm going to go do this now. And it just, like, you can't can't shut him down. And if Jackson has, you know, an ability to, to play different styles and execute well, he is going to be um, an epically good quarterback. Yeah, I think this is the big difference between this forthcoming mediocre Joe Flacco season and all the previous mediocre Joe Flacco (laughs) seasons is that he's finally going to have some heat. I mean, this is a guy who has been living off of playoff success for so long now when the numbers just totally don't back it up. I'm with Scuzz, though, but I mean, I think it's fascinating because, I mean, I'm on the record for saying that, and and I think not unlike RG3, um, I think the moment like don't miss Lamar Jackson performances because I think his star is going to burn bright and burn fast. And I think the first couple of years he's going to be in the league are going to be the most dynamic. And, and uh, the moment that show starts in Baltimore, it's going to be an absolute barn burner. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be really exciting. Uh, before we bring it back home uh, and talk about the Northwestern draft and post draft experience, Anything else kind of jump out at you guys? Um, noticeable uh, things from the draft that uh, we should mention? Yeah, for me, just a couple quick quarterback things. And this, again, just comes from a lot of post-draft analysis and reading and listening to, to other takes and such. All we the talked takes a little bit scalding of, hot, I'm sure. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, so these are these are some pretty rational takes. I feel like because um, the scalding hot take is that you know Josh Rosen is a bum and people don't like him and that's why he fell. There was some nonsense about the Cleveland GM talking to his volleyball girlfriend at a at a airport gate and not getting a good feel on Rosen as a result and just some real some real stupid nonsense. But I mean, what's what's obvious is that. People saw that Rosen's talent was super high, and people also decided, scouts decided specifically, that they didn't like him. They didn't like his makeup. There, there are comments out there around, like, you know, not set up for NFL life and this, that, and the other thing, which I just, I, I don't I don't understand how that could be farther from the truth. Um, but what, what I do think is interesting, and I see this a lot in, in, in corporate America, um, people struggle to hire people that are not like them. And I mean like in terms of like the way they work, the way they think. Um, And I think a lot of scouts just felt either challenged or just didn't connect with Rosen in the ways that they might, that they connect with a more like quote unquote football guy guy or something. And he, you know, happened to, to rub people the wrong way. And I just, I think, I, I think that's a huge miss I think it's a huge miss by a lot of teams. Now, is he going to be the best QB out of this draft? I don't know, but the idea that Arizona got him way down the draft board is um, is a pretty big steal in my opinion. Yeah, I think for me, talking about backfield positions, um, the position that was most fascinating to me was running back, um, and this is going to dovetail with where we're about to go in a second regarding a certain Northwestern running back, but... This was just an impossibly deep running back draft. And where you had this top side of quarterbacks where everything I've, you know, Scuzz has talked about where a guy like Josh Rosen can fall, but he's not falling like that far. And even Lamar Jackson, as far as he fell, is still creeping into the first round. And then, you know, I mean, you've got your Mason Rudolph pick and then you've kind of got everything after that. Where a guy like Luke Falk, right, who threw for a million billion yards he went what I think like seventh round or something like that or um, <laughs> it but was late the, yeah yeah Third, it was late. day three but running back holy moly I I mean and we talked about this before the draft where I'm looking at Justin Jackson and being like where's he gonna go and then looking at the whole list of running backs above him and being like Lord have mercy are there a lot of good running backs in this draft and um, like Akram Wadley wasn't drafted <laughs> like holy moly. Um, that guy was terrifying when we played against Iowa, and he didn't get drafted. And Bo Scarborough, I think, was seventh round, um, you know, not long before Jackson. Um, there were just so many backs in this. Um, and even if you wanted, you know, a third down back, which is where JJ kind of got eventually pegged. I mean, you've got, you were just, just a glut of choices. And because of that, I mean, a guy like Wadley, like you're telling me he can't come in and have like a really meaningful role. I think you may see that across a couple positions where if there was ever a year um, where you've got a couple free agent signings who come in and, and have an impact. I mean, I think you can see that and especially at running back. But I was I was just stunned at how many guys were were falling and just how far they were falling. I think people are going to remember Darius Geis because of all the, you know, just the smoke around his entire situation and the way that he kind of fell in the draft. But I mean, there were plenty of guys with, with real talent who went way later than him. Yeah. I was, I was pretty excited to see Denver take uh, Royce Freeman out of Oregon in the third. Right. Round. Classic example of a guy where it's like that guy could come in and be a really meaningful thing. And he was just available, you know, mid draft. It's, it's amazing. The interesting thing to me about, um, Jackson and Wadley in particular, and we can shift gears here. I think there's there's some very different viewpoints in the NFL around uh, running back strategy. You know, you've got teams like the Giants that took a guy like you know took Saquon Barkley number two overall. Uh, you saw Zeke Elliott go a couple of years ago, uh, Leonard Fournette, and when you look at the three of those guys. Barkley's the only one that has that really came in with a demonstrated like multitude of tools. Zeke Elliott was never a big pass catcher in college. Um, I don't know if he's if he's demonstrated that school, skill in the pros yet. Fournette was not a great 
pass blocker. I don't think he, I, I don't, I don't know that he caught a lot of balls. I don't think he really caught many. LSU rarely throws it. And that's where I think, you know, when you get down to the bottom of the draft, a guy like Bo Scarborough was not a pass-catching running back. I, I think for running backs to really be effective in the NFL now, you have to be multi, multi-tooled. Um, you have to be good in pass, pass protection. You have to be good catching the ball. This is why Jason Wright had a five-year career in the NFL, uh, where like playing, you know, third down for five years, um, cause he could do all those things. I think it's why ultimately Jackson will be, uh, an asset in, in San Diego and why I think he's going to have a good career. LA. So I'm, I did it again. I did it last time we were on the pod talking about the, the draft, uh, it, for the Chargers. It, it's going to take, just, it's going to take forever yeah. to, to get that Chargers to LA thing. I mean, that's, that's a rough one. I'm just going to call them the Chargers. Um, they should really be in San Diego. Anyways, uh, it's why I think JJ is going to be an asset for them. I, you know, Akram Wadley, I think you can, you can ask questions about his, uh, pass blocking. Um, but then you get like some of the other guys that went in the draft. Sony Michelle, who went, you know, towards the end of the first round of the, to the Patriots can do all of these things. Uh, and, you know, a guy like, uh, Nick Chubb, who went a few rounds later to, um, to Cleveland, I think people are people are surprised at the order that those two got picked in, and I'm not just because of uh, of that toolkit. It's running backs that can operate in the slot, that can operate uh, as a pass blocker. I mean, you saw what the Eagles were were able to do with um, a lot of not no name running backs, but certainly no like top five draft picks, uh, and they just move them around and throw to them sometimes and run RPOs, and it's confused the bejesus out of the defense, and and it worked because those guys were flexible and multiple. You guys see where Wadley ended up? No, where did he end up? Tennessee. Interesting. So again, like there's a situation where, yeah, he may have gone late, but I mean, you could totally see him coming in and having a role. But like Scuzz says, they may be looking at the tape on him and being like, he looks like a third down back, but in a situation where you've got a glut of third down backs, teams have the luxury to look and be like, well, who's the guy that we've got the tape on that looks like he's a really good third down back? And of course, the other thing that I always forget to factor in, which again we should probably like you know get into the rundown of exactly where guys were drafted and and when. But one thing that always happens, right, is you get mid to late draft. You're waiting for your guy to go, and in our case, JJ, but especially Godwin. Um, and then you see guys get picked over him that are small school guys or FCS guys, and you reach that point in the draft, right, where teams that have a need at a specific position are often really in love with a small school guy, and they're thinking, all right, late, if he's still available beyond round X, we're going to go down um, and get pluck this guy out because we think he's an undervalued asset because he played for a small school, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, we were all clearly watching that safety depth chart mid-round. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, Godwin spent several rounds in the top three of available safeties. And then you'd see some team go and grab some guy from the FCS ranks or, you know, or some guy, you know, that the NFL had, had evaluated or ESPN had evaluated lower than Godwin um, that played for a really small school. And these teams, you know, fall in love with a particular guy. Um, but I think, you know, we were, I think the bottom line of kind of what we've been talking about is, right, I think we were all surprised Justin Jackson went as late as he did. But to me, that was overshadowed greatly by Godwin not getting picked at all. I mean, I think we thought that potentially he could go as high as fourth round. And I know we've been guilty in the past of overestimating where these guys can get drafted. But to me, I really thought it was going to be different with Godwin just because the athleticism is so there for him. Like, that's one thing he brings. I mean, you could talk about a little bit of polish in terms of coverage or whatever, but, I mean, teams so often, especially mid to late draft, talk themselves into guys who are just great athletes, and that's him. Um, And I was, you know, because of that, I think that was, to me, was the real shock of the draft was him um, not getting picked and having to sign as a free agent. I mean, the thing we just don't know about is how the medical evaluation went at the Combine. And that's... That's such a major factor that if there's any concerns or any pit, like hiccups, like that's a guy's going to plummet, and there's going to be no nobody's going to be able to tell you why or how. Um, I mean, who knows if that's if 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 there's anything like that that happened with Godwin, or if similar to JJ, he was just the victim of a deep 
safety crowd. I mean, I, I remember a couple times during the draft texting you guys and saying, oh, guys, look, like there's like a mini run on safeties. Maybe, you know, maybe things are going to steamroll here. And then I'd go look at the list of safeties, and it'd be like eight guys in front of him. So um, interesting thing that, that that just occurred to me. I was looking at, at Inside NU's write-up on Godwin. They talked about that from a numbers perspective. He, he really dropped off his senior year, and that's more about scheme and the fact that they asked him to drop into coverage more this year as opposed to attacking the the, um, the line and attacking downfield. Um, and I, like, I wonder... That certainly could be the sort of thing where scouts that weren't maybe paying a ton of attention last year took a took a peek under the hood this year and were like, eh, you know, we'll just slot him here in the middle. I think he landed in a spectacular spot, especially because the Bucks did not, you know, draft who we all thought they would get in the first round in Derwin James. They went defensive tackle. We know that they needed uh, help on the back end, and much like Ibrahim Campbell has has carved out a uh, a rotational role in their defensive backfield. I could see that working out for Godwin as well. It's also really cool um, that Godwin's uncle played for Tampa as well. So yeah, it's cool that, you know, he's got some ties to the Buccaneer organization um, and, you know, is able to to go there. So, you know, it it should be really cool uh, for Godwin to, to jump in there. I I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, JJ with the chargers. Um, It's an interesting situation because, uh, you look at the Chargers running backs, you've got Melvin Gordon and not much else. And again, like, I don't want to overstate, right? I mean, I think Justin Jackson is small. He's He's got a lot of miles on him. And I think, you know, like, no one's going to make the mistake of thinking that he's going to come in and be a bell cow kind of running back. But I think... I do believe he's got a really clearly defined role. And if he can show that he can do pass pro, I just, I mean, I really do think that, right. Like there's, there are not a lot of guys on the, on the depth chart that could take third down touches away from him. And I certainly believe he's going to be a part of that rotation. I think he's just a guy that we've always felt has a really clear projectable role in the NFL. Right. And if he goes to a place where there aren't a heck of a lot of guys that could be taking that, I mean, we know that Melvin Gordon can be kind of a scat back kind of back, but if the Chargers decide that he's going to be the first down, second down running back, then obviously Justin Jackson's got as much of a case for third down as anybody else. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think for, for him, we always kind of felt that he just needs to get into the league and then he's going to find a space. So the, the comp I have for him is, uh, you know, and if it ends up turning out like this, it'll be huge for Jackson. It'll suck for me because he'll be doing it with the Chargers. And that, that really kind of hurts my soul that I have to, you know, cheer for a charger. Um, but I will because it's JJ. Uh, but you know, similar situation. I look back to, uh, Terrell Davis, um, you know, late round draft pick sixth round out of Georgia. And he dominated at Georgia and, uh, just kind of fell in the draft due to circumstances, but he had a, an unbelievable preseason and showed out on special teams. Now JJ really hasn't played special teams at all. But, you know, for him to, if he's able to come in and turn some heads on special teams, you know, he definitely will have an opportunity to make the, the final 53. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I, you're right. He's not a guy who has a lot of experience there just because he's, he's, he was our bell cow for so long. And obviously, like, that's the thing. Like, I believe he could be a first or second down running back. I just don't believe the NFL is going to evaluate him that way. Um, not yet, at least. Right. <laughs> Davis is such a weird guy to go back on because, like, Davis coming into the league and getting his shot coincided with this zone-blocking revolution that the that the uh, Broncos were implementing that he was the perfect fit for. You know what I mean? It was, like, perfect guy, perfect situation, and, and maybe maybe that's it. I mean, again, it, what I guess it just goes to is it's it's finding that right role, right? And, if, and all it takes is, you know, having one good game where you go out there and demonstrate a skill at, at the right time, and that's it. You've you've carved a role out for yourself. So yeah, here's here's hoping that uh, that plays out for him. Uh, real quick, want to run down some of the other uh, cats who signed as uh, undrafted free agents. You know, we mentioned Godwin going to Tampa. Warren Long signed with uh, Seattle, so that that could be an interesting fit uh, with him on special teams. Uh, Kyle Cairo uh, got signed by the Cowboys. Tyler Lancaster goes up to Green Bay. 
um, you know, put him back on a line with Dean Lowry, and that could be a lot of fun. How awesome is that? Potentially those two beef eaters in the middle. That would be so cool. <laughs> and then uh, a couple days later, we got word that Hunter Nicewander signed with uh, Pittsburgh, which is cool for him because he grew up not too far away from Pittsburgh. So uh, kind of a chance for him to go home um, and, and punt for his hometown team. Whether or not, I mean, landing a job as a punter, as the second punter in camp, that's probably not in the cards, but, uh, you know, you never know. I mean, you, punters get hurt all the time and, you know, it's hard to really evaluate punters. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's the cats in the draft. And, well, and there's, and lest we forget, one other cat. Uh, is signed as a UDFA for the Philadelphia Eagles, and that is Ian Park. Who, That's right. For Let us not reason, forget did, that. No, did not sure. get like which was again. I feel like Scuzz was banging his head against the wall at the time, but it's a situation that whereas you know Venrick Mark right transferred to a D two school and it didn't really work out for him when he did for whatever reason. Ian Park went to Slippery Rock and was exactly what we thought he'd be at Slippery Rock. He was one of the best D2 linemen in the country for a year, leaving us all be like, good God, Northwestern, why didn't you clear him? And now he's signed for the Philadelphia Eagles. But I mean, again, he's a Philadelphia area guy, grew up there, went transferred to a Philadelphia area school, and now he's signed with the Eagles. So, I mean, great for him. Good job, Ian. Yeah, that's... Um, ugh. With all the problems we had on O line the last two years, it just still like irks me um, to no end that we we couldn't keep keep Park. And who knows? Like there might have been family stuff. Like we don't we don't quite know everything that happened there. But um, it is too bad. I'm gonna go out on a limb with just an interesting. Um, I'm just gonna throw that at, throw this out as interesting. I don't know. Like I don't know that there's uh, anything real here. But so Tyler Lancaster with Green Bay. You guys already mentioned Dean Lowry already there, right? some familiarity with a guy coming out of the cats program. Uh, Cairo going to Dallas. They, uh, I think signed, um, Joseph, uh, they, they did, Joseph. they did sign Joseph Jones. Um, but yeah. Jones, uh, didn't make the Cowboys. He bounced up to the Seahawks, got cut by the Seahawks and, uh, ended the year with Denver and got, re- but, and got re-signed by Denver. But still another guy that, you know, an NU guy that went through their camp, they're familiar with a guy, you know, a recent guy from an NU program. Um, this is not recent, but we're along in Seattle. Uh, Kevin Bentley was an, was an excellent, uh, special teams player there and, and kind of backup linebacker for many, many years. I think he had a long career in the NFL. Um, obviously the chargers had Luis Castillo for many years. Uh, Pittsburgh had, um, Trey uh, Bryant. Uh, oh, and Trey Essex. Yep. Um, uh, and Corbin Bryant as well played there for a long time on the D line. So, uh, just interesting that, that, you know, not every team has got um, clear NU uh, players that they've drafted in the past. And I do think that there's a big piece of the NFL draft that relies on perspective of programs, specifically how programs develop certain players at certain positions. And I bring this up. This was this was brought up on the NFL uh, Ringer podcast, uh, the NFL Ringer show uh, earlier this week. I thought this was pretty interesting. They were talking about uh, offensive linemen that were drafted um, early on in the first round and whatnot, uh, Ohio State, Iowa, and Notre Dame were notable, and in part because not all the guys that were drafted out of those schools were drafted at what would be considered their natural position, but they were seen as really technically sound, uh, athletic enough players uh, to, to plug and play. And I forget, I forget the one that, um, that they were really talking about. He's six, two, and they drafted him as a, as a guard, I'm as a, as a tackle. Everybody thought he'd be a guard, but they drafted him as a tackle. But point being, um, year after year after year, Iowa is putting NFL quality O linemen into the draft and into the NFL. And they've developed this reputation. And I think this is one of the biggest hurdles. The Northwestern program needs to, leap if they are going to uh, measurably improve from where they sit today. And that's a um, respected pipeline to the NFL, not across the board. We're never going to be, you know, delivering defensive players like the SEC or, you know, skill position players like, like Ohio state, but you know, on, 
on some of the lines or maybe at linebacker or in some places like we've got to start building that that pedigree that guys coming out of NU are are recognized by the NFL not just for their um, prowess but for the development that they got specifically at Northwestern and if Pat Fitzgerald can achieve that that will be that will be massive I, I you know it would require some staff shakeups, most most likely to get there. But um, to me, that's the next big hurdle for this program, uh, and something to watch over the next five to ten years to see if they can if they can make any progress on that front. Uh, so, turning from uh, people leaving Northwestern to the NFL, let us uh, turn our attention to uh, people coming to Northwestern, and that is uh, the other side of the table in in recruiting. A um, little bit of recruiting news: Kale Millen. Uh, quarterback uh, out of the Pacific Northwest, uh, decommitted from Northwestern. He was, uh, you know, kind of a well thought of QB. You know, he committed a, had a, had a UCLA offer. Did right? have a UCLA offer. Um, you know, he decommitted and uh, went back to the Northwest. He signed with. He's going to sign with Oregon. Um, kind of put Northwestern in, in a bit of a rough spot. You know, as as far as where we're recruiting uh, quarterbacks, you know, we have to jump in uh, to some guys because Millen had been committed for quite some time. Um, you know, so we stopped recruiting quarterback and now uh, we're in a situation almost behind the eight ball uh, where we're, we're trying to scramble to get a QB for uh, the 2019 class. So, um, you know, don't, I, I, not going to take any shots whatsoever at Millen because that that's ridiculous. Like a kid wants to go play where a kid wants to go play and, and good for him. And hope, hopefully he has a great career at Oregon. But, uh, you know, as, as far as what Northwestern's looking at, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. It's, it's funny. I mean, part of the flip side too, right. Is like, this is the peril of, of, getting a really early verbal commit from a guy who doesn't live anywhere near where your school is, um, is, you know, ultimately Oregon came calling and that's a huge regional power right in his backyard. And that's, I mean, you always have to fight against stuff like that. And, and we've talked about before, we've gone all the way about, you know, the difficulties of recruiting guys, especially from the South, but of outside your region and what you have to do with all that and everything. And um, I think, you know, one of the interesting things that I thought about this year is I think a huge a huge issue, especially with quarterbacks, is you've got a bunch of darts at the board and you've got some big master board of okay, here are all the guys that we think are the top guys, but a huge part of it is and who can who do we think is gonna actually wanna come here and play? The reason we signed Kale Millen so early in the process is he demonstrated a desire to come to Northwestern. Interestingly enough, the two guys who are probably number one and number two on our board right now um, could easily be better than Kale Millen. Um, Zach Calzada and Davis Bevel. Davis Bevel especially is really interesting. Guy's six six, runs like a deer. Uh, Clayton Thorson type guy. But neither of them are from our backyard. Um, I think um, Calzada is from Georgia and Bevel is from South Carolina. So you're talking about two two Southern guys that you'd have to be going to get. And... In both cases, we're competing, you know, pretty favorably with other schools. Um, we match up pretty well, but it's by no means a gimme. And I think the whole reason, you know, Northwestern, we're known to try to, you know, find fit as early as possible and ink these guys and be like, look, is the interest mutual? Okay, well, then, like, you're our guy. Um, and, you know, it's by no means a sure thing that Calzada or Bevel sign with Northwestern. Um, and that's that's why this is all so dicey and why we try to ink quarterbacks as early as we can in the process. But I don't want people to make the mistake that like if we do get either of these guys, they are both just as highly regarded as Millen. The difference is Millen was willing, at least at the time, was willing to ink with the Cats a lot earlier, and that's a huge part of the process. So again, the situation as it stands right now for Northwestern is pretty dicey at quarterback. The potential outcomes, though, are still very positive. Um, and, and another interesting kind of tidbit uh, coming out down the pike is it's interesting. Um, you know, Louis Vacare was reporting on a number of offers that uh, went out. It looks like, you know, the, the cats, you know, recruiting is kicked up to another level. I mean, just today it looked like he tweeted five or six offers went out 
to you know a, bu- a bunch of folks uh, from all around the you know from you know the QBs, couple wide receivers, linemen. I mean, every, at all all fronts. You know, it looks like you know we're we're trying to really kind of make that big push uh, for for the 2019 recruits. The indoor facility is done. You know, you're seeing recruits taking their pictures in there, saying how beautiful it looks. Uh, now is actually the perfect time to be recruiting uh, into Evanston because the weather is gorgeous. Um, and, you know, spring practice is done. So, you know, the quiet time on campus is kind of the busy time off campus. Yeah, I think so. To me, the thing I'm really zeroing in on from a recruiting standpoint right now is um, there's a lot left to be said on this front, but this could potentially be uh, the arguably the great, you know, the the second greatest running back recruiting class um, that Northwestern has ever had. I think number one. With a bullet has got to be the year that we got Justin Jackson and Solomon Vault in the same class. Eventually, Vault ended up playing another position, but it's like with those two guys, what more could you possibly want um, in a recruiting class? And they and they both came in as running backs. Jackson was the do all guy, but Vault we forget was incredibly highly regarded. I mean, he was from I think Maryland, but had a Nebraska offer. His film looked unbelievable. He's blazingly fast. He was exactly who he ended up being when he showed up at Northwestern. Um, and there's a chance still, and it's a very solid chance, that Northwestern could put the same kind of class together. Um, the four-star bell cow would be Jarrell Brock, who is a guy, I think, I want to say from Quincy, Illinois. Um, yep, Q-Town. He is a monster recruit. And um, I again... I'm not saying this quoting any specific evidence, but there if you if you know Northwestern recruiting and you followed anything from a while, this guy has been a four star for quite a while. He goes to a small school, his tape is absolutely unbelievable. He's been a megastar in Illinois for two solid years now, and he's had a Northwestern offer for about a month and a half to two months. And if you follow Northwestern recruiting, there's only one logical reason why a guy doesn't have an offer for a while up until that point, given all the bona fides. And that's if there's some sort of academic issue, right? Where it's like, well, we want this guy to be a wildcat, but we just don't know if the grades are there. There are two possibilities that I see here. Um, One is, which is probably the more likely of the two, is the kid just got it together academically. Northwestern came to him and was like, look, if you want the offer... Um, here's where you got to get to. And the kid busted his butt and he got to that place. The second possibility, and the two possibilities are not mutually exclusive, is Louis Ianni recruited this kid really hard when he was at Iowa State and picked picked right back up on it when he got to Northwestern. And it's a possibility that, that he's been in a relationship and he's like, look, I really wanted you at Iowa State. Now I really want you at Northwestern. You got to make the grades and the kid got the grade up. It's also possible that Louis Ianni went to Fitz or Jim Phillips and have been like, look, this kid loves me. He wants to play for me. What can we do to get him on the team? Regardless, either way, um, one thing that is really apparent, and again, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but this kid really wants to play for Northwestern. Now, there are other teams that he may be really interested in, but he wanted that Northwestern offer. Whether it was, you know, he worked to grade his grades up or he just wanted to play with the any and he wanted that to come together. Like, he had six schools on his list, and the minute Northwestern offered him, he immediately came out and was like, my list is now seven because Northwestern is one of my top schools. And you're like, oh, okay, this kid's amazing. He's really, really good. And I think the minute Northwestern offered him, we became a really big player for him. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, Scuzz, but I want to say like Iowa's in the mix, I think. Um, yeah, so basically everyone west of uh, of East Lansing. So um, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Iowa State, to your point earlier, uh, Minnesota, Northwestern, Purdue, Michigan State, and Missouri are, are kind of the notables. So Right. Um, that's... 
I mean, if you think about where he, where Quincy is located, just north of St. Louis on the border with Missouri, so right, right on the river, the, in, river, yeah, right, river, r- river, 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 um, right in the thick of the the recruiting, you know, zone for the Iowa schools, for Missouri, for Illinois. I mean, this is this is uh, Southern Illinois corn country, and we'll see if we can pull him pull him in. It'd be it would be a huge get uh, for sure. Yeah, so that's and that's again that's the first half of this package that I'm talking about is um is Jarrell Brock. The second part is and I I don't want to butcher his name is either Wandale or Wandale depending on how it's pronounced Robinson. So let's go with one Wendale Robinson right now um from Kentucky. He we're really in the mix for this kid and this kid is 5'9", 175, and can absolutely fly. And if that sounds like anybody from Northwestern past, um, again, check out the film. Uh, I'm not saying he's been Rick fast. I'm saying he's Solomon Vault fast. He's really fast, and he's a burner. He's a guy who's going to come in. He's going to return your punts and kickoffs and scare the bejesus out of the opposing team. And also definitely be a change of pace back or a slot receiver or something like that. Or he's the kind of guy where if we didn't get Brock but we got this guy, you'd still feel really exciting about the situation. Um, but the idea that we could get both, um, it's a real thunder and lightning situation, not unlike Justin Jackson and Solomon Vault. So again, you're talking about two players, neither of whom were a clear cut number one pick four and I mean so obviously there's a lot more to be said and done here but our chances of getting both of these guys is really strong and and getting getting both of them is a definite possibility Robinson holds offers to Michigan Duke Nebraska Louisville uh, Kentucky Vanderbilt Wake Forest Wisconsin Purdue Minnesota etc etc Right. I mean, he's he's the real deal. His offer sheet actually looks really similar to what Vault's offer sheet looked like yeah. coming out of college. And, and what's interesting, listed as high interest for him are Duke, Michigan, Northwestern, and Virginia. So, you know, you think back to, John, the article that you did and some of the, the analysis you did around recruiting and Northwestern and when we succeed, et cetera. This kid wants to be at a high academic program uh, or high academic school. And Notre Dame's not in the ne- in the mix. Michigan is, he's a Kentucky kid. Seems like it's up for grabs. We'll see what happens. Uh, real quick, um, before we get out of here, I do want to uh, bring up this interesting situation with uh, former Northwestern assistant basketball coach Armand Gates. Uh, a few weeks ago, we mentioned that he uh, left Northwestern to take a job at uh, University of Florida as the associate head coach. Come to find out uh, this past week that he has left Florida uh, to take a job at Nebraska. Um, very, very curious. I, I guess he'd been down at Florida for a couple of weeks. He hadn't uh, moved his family down yet and uh, was starting to get some second thoughts. And I guess he's had a pretty decent relationship with uh, Nebraska head coach Tim Miles over the years. And um, when... He got the go-ahead from the, the Florida coach to reach out to Miles. And one thing led to another. Boom, he's now an assistant coach at Nebraska, making a fair amount less than what he was set to make at Florida. Um, everyone says that there was nothing uh, nothing big, nothing major, nothing uh, salacious, if you will, that uh, you know forced him out. Um, you know, it, Everyone is saying everything's on the up and up, but it's just a very bizarre situation. You know, you know what I was thinking about this, and and you guys will appreciate this reference, even if it sounds kind of ridiculous. It had me thinking about the Bachelorette and <laughs> that guy, that strength coach from Stanford, who showed up in uh, in uh, Peru to try to win back um, Becca and. The fact that, right, like, they went back to when uh, they were going to, what, like, Minnesota State, right, or something like that together, and he was playing football, and she was, like, a cheerleader or something like that, and then, and she she alluded to it that they tried to make it work, but then if you looked at his bio, right, he had bounced around. He'd been a strength coach, and he'd worked at Minnesota State, and then he'd worked somewhere else, and then somewhere else, I think, like, in some place like Arkansas State, and then got the Stanford job, and it's kind of like, 
<laughs> like closing the loop on where I'm going with this. The, I, you know, I feel like the weird thing, uh, Sam, to your point is we almost kind of take it for granted how much these guys bounce around in jobs. And it could have just been a situation where his family is like, his wife's like, I don't want to go to Florida. Like, we've been in Chicago for a long time. I like Chicago. I like the Midwest. I don't want to do this itinerant thing where you just bounce around to faraway schools all the time or something. And maybe he showed up and his family is like, you know, eh, I don't really feel about this or something. And, and eventually he was like, well, look, I've got a lot of good relationships at Nebraska. Maybe that's like the place for me and where I want to go. You know what I mean? It's like it's the same thing with the, you know, the, the, the guy from The Bachelor, he shows up. I mean, like, there's a really simple reason why their relationship didn't work. And it's because he wasn't all around. He was going to all of these different places. And, you know, they talk, you know, Gates has a family. And we get so used to all of these coaches taking their families wherever the jobs take them. And it could have just been a situation where his family and his social life and everything was like, look, this isn't like I, we don't want to be here. We could be with our, with our people in the Midwest, and that just led to the change, you know. There's so many, so many um, conspiracy theories you could run down here. I, on one hand, I wonder if this says more about the Florida program and Gainesville, like you were saying, John, than it does Gates. I also think it's interesting. Has Northwestern announced who his replacement is? Not yet. No. Yeah, it's I mean, weird it that like weird. that his option, it, one of his options, wasn't to just come back here. Yeah, and there's been zero commentary from Collins or Northwestern or any, anyone else in all the articles that I've seen out there, which I think like which is kind of odd, right? Like that, like there's some Nebraska reporters, there's some uh, some Florida reporters. You would you would think they would have maybe given a given a call to the Cats. The one other thing that pops up when you Google. Why didn't Armand Gates go back to Northwestern? <laughs> is the Vice Sports article about Johnny Vassar? And Ooh. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. I wonder if his if there was anything that might have gone wrong for him at Florida that was his doing. Perhaps he got you know too aggressive or too you know borderline in in his interactions with recruits or current players uh, there's a story uh, I, I there's a there's a comment somewhere that says something you know uh, on one of these articles that, that i think was written in in nebraska about oh he's you know he said in an interview sometime he ran some kid off when he was at chicago state or or, or Loyola. i forget which school he coached at before i knew um and there's the whole vast situation so i i don't know i just i throw it out there because i would feel um uh i i I would feel like I wasn't doing my 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 job as a as an objective commentator on the state of Northwestern programs to to bring this up, but um, I don't know. I you know y- you wonder if if that's part of the reason why Northwestern wasn't wasn't maybe an option, and maybe it would have just been weird for him to leave and then come back, knowing that he was always going to try to leave again. But the documentation on this is pretty clear. Like he's taken a big pay cut. He's it, it's a it's a much lesser role that he's got at Nebraska than the one he had at Florida. Now I don't know how it compares to what he was doing at NU, but it's just a weird situation. And now his we, press and now conference gonna, was awkward. And now we're going to see him like at yeah, least once like a year. that's yeah. that's the other thing I don't like is like now that dude is you know inside the Nebraska program telling them this that and the other thing. So I don't know. And we were all bummed when we heard that he was leaving NU because he had such a big impact on on the bigs for the cats, you know, Ola and then, uh, uh, pardon and Benson, et cetera. But I don't know. I guess we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, anything else we need to discuss tonight before we get out of here? Or is it time to continue our search for the Swoley grail? For my final thought, let's talk a little woman's lacks. So, you know, since the last time we potted, a fair amount's happened. We had talked forever about the women's team on their big win streak midseason was kind of circling that Maryland game. They played a really tight game with Maryland. They were down a little bit. They rallied. The rally ultimately fell short um, to really one of the best teams in the country and the top team in the Big Ten. 
And, uh, you know, the, the woman fought really tough, lost a narrow one. Um, then a little bit of a surprise, a mild surprise. Um, the Cats were the two seed in the Big Ten tournament, had a bye. Um, their first game was against number three seeded Penn State, and they dropped that one in another close game to a, a, a tough team, but a team that the Cats had previously beaten on the road um, in the Big Ten play. So that was a, a little bit of a surprise, and it has the Cats on a little mini slump coming into the tournament, um, the NCAA tournament. Um, that Penn State loss, I'm going to guess, probably cost them a seed. Um, the top eight teams in the tournament are seeded, um, and Northwestern did not get, was not one of those eight teams. So, you know, you guess, you know, the Cats probably ended up probably around like the nine seed, ten seed, something like that. Um, with that said, um, the, the Cats bracket is, is pretty reasonable. I mean, at least to start. The Cats open facing the Richmond Spiders. Um, who are also unseeded. A win over that would most likely take the Cats up against Towson, who's the seven seed, so that's a, a tough matchup, but um, probably a very even matchup for the Cats. Um, most likely, the game after that would be North Carolina, and for, from this point on, it, it would be heavy hitters. I mean, it would be the number two seed Tar Heels, who the Cats lost to earlier in the season. Um, and then by that point, you're talking, you know, Final Four, and it could be anyone. You know, Maryland, we wouldn't meet until the national championship game, potentially. But, you know, you're talking about Stony Brook would be a potential, you know, matchup beyond that point, And, you know, it would, it would be all powers. But at least for starters, the Cats should certainly be favored to win their opening round matchup against Richmond. And then uh, the competition ramps up. But you've got to think the Cats, you know, would have a real chance of of beating that Towson team also and getting on to the quarters against North Carolina. Yeah, I think it'd be fair to say there'd be a little bit of a disappointment if they didn't get into that North Carolina matchup. And um, I don't know. I like. I think they're playing better now, or, or they were playing better midseason than they were at the very beginning of the year. I'd like to think that they'd certainly have a shot against North Carolina. The, the other side of the bracket going into their semifinal, unless I'm misreading this, this chart, um, Florida, James Madison... Stanford, Virginia, Colorado, Jacksonville. Nothing there is really scary or jumping off the page. It's really Stony Brook and Maryland that you'd see in the championship game. So who knows? The Cats might have a run in them. Um, let's tune in, and, and hopefully we get, to, we get to ride this thing for, for a few weeks. Oh, God, what am I going to talk about? Um, Sammy, you're going to talk about hockey. Oh, I know what I'm going to talk about. So for my final thought, I'm going to talk about um, – the very exciting, brand spanking new Major League Rugby uh, League that has started up in the United States, MLR. Uh, there's long been an effort to bring a professional rugby enterprise to the United States. Um, the U.S. is seen as a sleeping giant in the world of, of international rugby. Uh, obviously, we have a boatload of people, a boatload of athletes. Um, you can imagine that Football players, if they can learn to uh, not do football things uh, and do rugby things instead, would be well-suited for a transition to that game. And I think in part fueled off of uh, the Olympic money coming in to support the U.S. Sevens program. Uh, the U.S. rugby program in general is playing uh, better and better. And this year, this is probably like the fifth or sixth attempt at a, at a pro league in the U.S., uh, MLR has, has launched, uh, it started at, at around the beginning of April. There are six teams, seven teams right now, uh, Utah, San Diego. Yes. San Diego, not Los Angeles, um, <laughs> <laughs> Seattle. Uh, there's an, there's a Glendale team, uh, then new Orleans, Houston and Austin. Um, there's a number of, number of other squads slated to join the competition next year. That'll include, include uh, at least one, maybe two teams in New York, uh, a team in Dallas, and then uh, there was talk of a team in Minnesota, talk of a team in Columbus, a couple other uh, potential options floating around. But uh, but this is very exciting, namely because unlike past years where they just kind of found people to start up franchises in various cities and, and try to pull from pull from you know various talent around those cities this this iteration has been built off of existing clubs so for example there's a long-standing rugby club in austin called the austin huns uh very involved in in amateur rugby at uh, semi-pro rugby etc uh, and the austin elite this pro uh professional rugby team has been built 
on the backs of that club. It is, it is, uh, I think financially tied to that club. A lot of the players have come up from that club. Um, so they, they've built this league on top of, uh, a relatively existing, uh, rugby infrastructure. They also have, uh, and maybe they've just lucked out with the way TV rights and, and streaming and things are going right now that there's, uh, a lot of, of opportunity for, big players to kind of test out niche sports and, and getting those things on the airwaves. So these games are all available on either CBS sports network or ESPN plus the new, um, I think it's like five bucks a month uh, to get ESPN plus you get a ton of, of uh, additional content, whether you have a cable subscription or not. So it's very, very exciting for a rugby fan like myself. Um, I've been, uh, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've decided that the NOLA gold are my team, uh, mostly because I just love New Orleans and they are, um, they just have pretty cool, like a pretty cool logo and stuff. I have, I have nothing more to go on than that. <laughs> uh, and I don't have a particular, um, love for any of those other cities or squads, but, uh, but the, the really great thing is that it's been, it's been good rugby. This is not, you know, this is not European premiership rugby where they're just kicking the ball back and forth, uh, trying to get field position. Like these guys are, are playing, uh, attacking, uh, aggressive passing rugby. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. You had a really tight match, uh, last weekend between Austin and San Diego, San Diego, won 35, 32. So these, these are not like 14 to 12 mud fests either. They're, they're, uh, they're a lot of fun. Uh, the atmospheres and the fans have been pretty good as well. So, the the only negative right now is that the Glendale team in Colorado is a uh, is a squad that's a, that's a club that's existed for many 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 years and is really well established. They have um, uh, a player pool that they just tap into with ease, and they are probably a cut above everybody else. It'll it'll be a surprise if they lose a game this uh, this initial season. So that's kind of the big question everyone's asking now is. Can someone compete with Glendale for um, for the league championship? It'll get really interesting once they expand to what seems like probably close to ten teams next year. So uh, exciting times! If if you are in one of these cities or or you're bored um, with the likes of Major League Baseball and the NBA, and there's not a hockey night, you want to tune into some rugby. I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's good fun. the The ESPN Plus platform is just as solid as, as watch ESPN. It's super easy to access, super easy to watch. You can try it for free for seven days. And, uh, yeah, that's my pitch on major league rugby. ESPN. will will take that advertising check anytime you want to send that. So, Hey man, they signed up, they signed up to support this rugby league. And that's probably going to be the, that's, that is probably going to be the major difference between this one surviving, um, and all the other ones that have died after a single season. That's awesome. I, 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 I could be a lot of fun and i'm glad that my uh, my colorado boys are taking care of business you know uh for my final thought i want to take it to the ice um we are rapidly approaching conference finals uh you've got on one end you've got washington who finally after how many times uh, losing to pittsburgh they finally got over the hump and uh, knocking off pittsburgh in six uh interesting it had that game went to overtime, and I am convinced that if Pittsburgh had won that game, they would have just obliterated Washington in Game 7, just because that would have been 100% in Washington's heads. Um, and they, can't, they can't win Game 7. They can't win Game 7. <laughs> they can't beat Pittsburgh. But uh, you know, if they could do it in 6, and that, that's, I guess, what it ended up taking. Uh, they're taking on Tampa, who's uh, you know very talented. They got past Boston. Um even with all of the, the face licking that Brad Marchant was doing, uh, for the Bruins, um, very bizarre story, uh, from that side. So Washington and Tampa, you know, could be really, really interesting. Um, Tampa is solid. I mean, they were the best team in the East by record. So that, uh, should favor them. Washington is playing pretty good. We'll have to see. Out in the West, you've got uh, Game 7 coming up with Nashville and Winnipeg. That has been unbelievably fun hockey. Um, you know, just they, they both play a very, very fun style. Uh, it's been very up-tempo, just a lot of emotion. It's been really, really cool, and the, the crowds have been insane. I mean, a Winnipeg home game, just the, the, the whiteout. I mean, those guys, you know, 
definitely showed that they were missing hockey for all those years. And they, you know, for the first time, I think, I, I can't think of when the last time a Winnipeg team won a playoff series. Just period. I mean, even going back to the, the previous iteration, it's been a long time. And now they're in a game seven against Nashville for the uh, chance to go play in the conference finals against, that's right, the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah. <laughs> the Those those <laughs> misfits from Vegas, man. I, it's just, you know, at, at some point, it's no longer a, boy, this is just a great story. Now, this is, just, this is really cool. You know, it, it, it's gone past just bizarre, funny. It's like, these guys are playing really, really well. I mean, they took it to San Jose. Um, you know, a, a team that played super fast, very up-tempo. What they'll probably end up seeing against uh, either, well, against Winnipeg. Um, if they play Nashville, that's going to be more of a bruising style. They they showed that they can play both ways. They beat the Kings playing bruising. They beat the Sharks playing up-tempo. And uh, they'll have to do that again in order to make the cup finals, which would just be absolutely bonkers. And I would love to see that. And especially because you look at um, you know, all, all the storylines that you could see going into the cup final. If Washington wins, uh, they could go up against Vegas. Um, Vegas's general manager was uh, Washington's longtime GM. Uh, you've got uh, against Nashville. Uh, Washington, you know, there's some history there. Barry Trotz, the head coach for the, the Capitals, used to coach at Nashville. Uh, Washington was on the, the wrong end of a very one-sided trade a few years back, uh, sending Philip Forsberg to Nashville in exchange for what ended up being a pile of pucks and Martin, and Martin Erat. To me, as someone who's like not deep into the inside baseball of hockey, any scenario with the teams that are left, any scenario not involving Tampa Bay is just an absolute goldmine for the NHL. I just, I mean, the idea like Ovechkin and Washington finally trying to win against Vegas, I mean, that is just unbelievable if that's the final two teams that are in this final. I mean, it couldn't have worked out any better. But I mean, like Nashville and Winnipeg are just such. The fans are just unbelievable at both of those places. And I think, you know, I just, and again, I, I don't claim to know a lot about, I know Tampa Bay is a really great hockey team. I just, for the league, I think Washington and their, you know, sad sack fan base finally trying to get over the hump versus this Vegas phenomenon would just be unbelievable. Well, there was, there was this fun moment after I believe it was game four in the Washington Pittsburgh series where a bunch of reporters happened to be standing right outside. They were like in a, in a corralling zone right outside or right inside the um, Washington locker room. And that game went in Pittsburgh's favor, tied the series back up. And there were a couple, there were a number of, I won't call them controversial calls because the video replay was pretty clear, but um, Washington definitely felt like they were getting the short end of the stick. Nicholas Backstrom, who's seen as a, um, a leader in that clubhouse for sure, uh, walks in, walks, you know, past these reporters, throws his stick and yells, F this league. And then um, the hot takes yeah, everything you would expect to happen happened. Like a couple of reporters reported it. Um, the Washington Capitals said it didn't happen. Uh, well, I said one reporter reported it, then the Washington Capitals said it didn't happen, and then another reporter corroborated it, and then there was just like a lot of fracas. Um, Washington, I think, has has long felt uh, like a like a stepchild in the league with the way calls go, et cetera. So it'll be interesting with them in a situation where you're right, John. It clearly benefits the NHL to have. Uh, Washington and their storylines in in the cup final. So uh, I I always enjoy these conspiracy theories. I don't think that leagues really do anything except except with the Lakers in the uh, against the Kings in the early in the early aughts against the Kings. Yeah, Donnie. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ref refs that have been indicted for for or found guilty for uh, gambling and such. But um, but regardless, like. To me, this whatever whatever happens with Nashville, Winnipeg, this Final Four is a great Final Four. I'm so happy that the likes of Pittsburgh and Boston and Los Angeles are not part of it. I'm sure there are lots of people that are saying that about Chicago. 
screw those people, but still, this is going to be a really fun finish in the NHL. And uh, the conspiracy theories will probably also uh, favor Nashville over Winnipeg just because yeah. of the uh, TV situation. Um, you know, come on, Jets! Come on, Jets! Yeah, NBC does not get ratings for uh, for for games in Canada, so um, they would take a, a bit of a bath on the ad, on the ad front for that. But uh, and, and I just the, I just think you've got. With the capitals, you've got Russians and you've got conspiracy theories. It all seems very current to me. <laughs> it's it's remarkable how how current it all is. Uh, so that'll just about wrap it up for this week. Head to our website westlawpirates.com where you can leave comments and questions. Uh, find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at Westlaw Pirates. You can call our voicemail line eight four seven two three one two two eight seven. That's eight four seven two three one cats. And email the show westlawpirates at gmail.com. Tune in next time as we give our visceral and statistical views on Northwestern athletics and look for us in the West Lot of Ryan Field flying the red pirate flag because we give no quarter, especially the fourth. For John Lacombe and Eric Skazball, I'm Sam Walter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.